Morning, Renewal. Good morning. <clears throat> Good to worship with you this morning. Before we begin, I do want to highlight our announcement uh, regarding our November 19th service. Uh, for those who are not members of Devon or West Philly, uh, we'll be having foundations class next week. So please make sure to submit uh, those applications. We have some physical copies at the welcoming table, and you can find them on the website as well. You need to turn them in so that we can prepare uh, for a series of classes where we go over uh, just the basic tenets of our faith and also to explain more about what renewal is all about. And so we ask for you to come to those classes. Uh, there will be child care if you ask, and also lunch will be provided. At the same time, if you have a child uh, who you wish uh, to be baptized, uh, please email us by tonight. Uh, there is just simply one conversation I need to have with the parents, uh, just so that you understand uh, just what we believe in baptism uh, before we baptize your children. All of this will take place on November 19th where we induct new members, and at the same time, uh, we're going to recite uh, our existing members from Devon and West Philly, who will at that point be Renewal Main Line. It's going to be a celebratory event. We're going to have catered food afterwards. Uh, we'll hang out afterwards as well. Uh, for college students, please invite uh, your uh, friends, especially international students during that time, uh, since Thanksgiving can be a pretty lonely time. Uh, we purposely try to make that a very warm uh, kind of environment uh, to welcome our friends as well. So please keep that date uh, in mind. Well, with that said, uh, I do want to introduce our passage uh, just by drawing our attention to what this whole book of Acts is about. We initially, uh, we established what the central theme of Acts was. And it comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You don't have to turn to it, but I'll read it for us. And this is the central theme of this book. That's where Jesus tells his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so far, we've seen that unfold, haven't we? We've seen uh, the Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down upon the church and we see people speaking in different languages so that those who are not of the Israel region, that they can understand the gospel. We've seen the healing of the lame man. We've seen Peter and John boldly preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus, even in the face of persecution. So we see Acts 1-8, this gospel, starting in Jerusalem, start to be spread outside to the ends of the earth. And that's the central theme. Now, with any gospel work, and this is going to be a rule of thumb for all of us. With any intentional, deliberate gospel work, there will be opposition. There will be spiritual opposition, namely by Satan, by the devil. And how have we seen that opposition thus far in Acts? Well, first we saw that the church encountered their first experience of persecution, didn't we? that when they're preaching this gospel, that the Jewish leaders and other leaders of the temple, that they persecuted them, saying, do not speak of Jesus' name any longer. So we see this opposition that comes from outside, and we're going to see that opposition continue. But in our passage, where do we see that opposition? 
It doesn't come from outside of the church, outside of the walls. We see opposition that comes from within the church, from its own members, from its own people. And we see that's how Satan is going to operate. And perhaps some of us can attest to it. Whenever you encounter God in a real intimate way, say, for example, you go to community group or after service or you have a great time of prayer, isn't it odd that oftentimes that something will happen to take away those blessings? An argument with your spouse on the way home or something that just logistically doesn't go wrong, uh, go right. Why is that the case? And I can attest to this as well. As many of you know, I spent a couple years in Taiwan doing missions work. And as I was with this organization, our whole focus was to share the gospel whether it be through humanitarian efforts, whether it be direct preaching, that was our intent. Now, during that time, I can personally attest, it was the most spiritual opposition that I encountered. You know, Taiwan has the most number of temples within a given square, a mile radius. Wherever you go, you're going to see these dim red lights and this gold-painted building. And inside them, all of these idols. And I can just remember having so much opposition. Not even spiritually, but even as we're trying to share the gospel, something would always come up to stop us from our work. Now, I also went to Taiwan a few years ago. And this time, it wasn't with a missions organization. It wasn't for missions specifically. It was just vacation. I went there just to visit old friends, to eat good night market food, drink as much cheap boba tea as I wanted. And during that time, I encountered no spiritual opposition. Nothing of the sort. Why? Is it because in a matter of those few years that the whole country of Taiwan changed into a Christian nation? That's not the case. Even to this day, it's the last Han descent of Asian descent that has yet to experience gospel revival. It's not as if the country changed, but my demeanor, my intent, my whole purpose had changed. And when my intent was not focused on getting this gospel outside, there was no opposition. And that's what we're going to see, even us as a church, as we get started, as a church that spreads this gospel to those people around us. We see it in the book of Acts, in the early church as well, where we see this gospel persecution happen physically from the outside. And now Satan, seeing how that fails, he takes his next step. And he doesn't do it from these obvious, evident ways of persecution, but he attacks from within. And that's the deception. That's the kind of opposition that we are going to face. But at the same time, our passage is a story about how God responds to that kind of opposition. Why? Because he wants to protect his church. So we see he immediately squashes this kind of opposition, whether it be from the outside or from the inside. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We'll do it in two points. The first one is deception, and the second, destruction. Just two Ds. Two aspects about this gospel opposition that comes from within. First is deception, and God's response to that, which is destruction. 
So with that introduction, let's pray and ask God one more time for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us and guide us in your truth. Lord, we thank you that you're not a silent God, but you speak to us through your word to protect us. So we pray, Lord, as we study this passage, that you'll enlighten our minds and our hearts. And we pray that whatever we take away today may not simply stay within these walls, may not simply stay in our own minds or even our own hearts, but may they come to fruition in the way that our lives are transformed. We pray for your help. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things we have to first establish is what's going on in this passage. And what we see is that the early church, that they had this radical generosity. They had this radical generosity, especially as we see in chapter 4, where people within the church, they were selling their own belongings and possessions, getting that money, and they were distributing it to the poor and needy within the church. We saw that people, the believers, they saw how much that they had and they said, you know what, I know this brother, I know this sister is in need. So they actually sold their property and distributed amongst the church. And we see see that they did that because they were of one heart and one mind. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And we see in verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. And note this, it says, great grace was upon them all. This gospel grace marked the church. And in verse 34, what's the result of that gospel? There was not a needy person among them. Luke writes. Now, this wasn't an early form of communism where everyone is forced to give up their belongings so that it could be equally distributed. Why? Because this is completely voluntary. It was up to you if you wanted to give or not. No one forced these Christians to give up their belongings or to sell their possessions. But what happened is these believers, they saw other people inside the church in need. And that triggered them to look at what they already have in Christ. Where Christ, he gave up his heavenly, eternal riches. He became poor so that we could be rich. We have all that we need. And seeing that, they took actual, literal steps to help those in need. And that's what happens. That's what happens when you encounter this gospel. John Piper, he writes, the heart becomes tightened in its relationship to people. And the heart becomes loosened in its relationship to things. That's what happens as a result of the gospel. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people and cuts the bond of love to things. And so we see that happening here in the early church. And this voluntary act of this radical generosity marked the whole church. Now, if we establish that this was completely voluntary, why did Ananias and Sapphira, why did they receive such a harsh 
judgment. Because it was up to them if they wanted to give any of their proceeds to the church or not. We see that they sold their property, they got money for it, and they gave the majority of it to the church. And they held back just a portion of it. And we see that, that's very generous, isn't it? If somebody did that today, you sell your house, you liquidate all your assets, your stock portfolio, all everything, and you just keep back a portion of it, and you give the majority of it to those in need within the church, wouldn't we say, wow, what a generous act? Wouldn't that be recognized? It would. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They sold their belongings and they gave most of it to the church. But here we see that they receive this harsh, severe judgment. They fall down to their deaths immediately. And if we believe that this is a true historical fact, true historical event that took place in the early church, at the very least, we should be scratching our heads confused. How could this be? Why so severe? And to explain that first, let's explain why they received such this judgment. And it's not because they didn't give everything. It's not because they kept back a portion of it to themselves. Why? Because it's voluntary. We see that Peter says in verse 4, if you look with me, what does he tell them? While your property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And that word disposal also means authority. Was not all your belongings under your authority? You could have done whatever you wanted to do with it. Give 1%, 50%, 99%, even 100%. It was under your discretion of how you wanted to use it. But Peter continues and says, Why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit, keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And it's this act of deception, this hypocrisy. That is the reason why they receive this kind of judgment. They lie to the Holy Spirit. They lie to God himself. And that's what results in their immediate deaths. Now, why did they do this? Well, if you look a few verses before in verse 36 of chapter 4, you're going to see a a man named Joseph, who's also named Barnabas. And we see that in light of this radical generosity, that he sells all that he has, he liquidates it, and he gives all of its proceeds to the church, and he lays it down at the apostles' feet. That happens in Uh, 36, 37, and onward. Now, right after that, if you look at verse 1 in chapter 5, what does the first word begin with? But. Luke writes, but. Why? Because he wants to compare and contrast Ananias and Sapphira against Barnabas. Barnabas, he sold all that he had. He gave everything to the apostles. But Ananias and Sapphira, they did the same thing. But they kept back a portion of their proceeds and they gave it to the apostles. Now, on the outside, it looks the same. Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. That's what his name means. And that will be reflected in his act of generosity. 
to the people of the church, they will look at Ananias and Sapphira, they will think the same thing. Ananias' names, his name means God is gracious. Sapphira, her name means beautiful. And that's how they would have seen their act. They don't know how much they got. But what happened is, Ananias and Sapphira gave the majority of their proceeds to the church and pretended as if it was everything. That while the motivation of Barnabas was one of true generosity, he wanted to give all that he had to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira, even though they didn't have to, they didn't have to give anything. But they acted as if they did. And they kept back a portion of it to themselves. And it is that act of deception, that act of hypocrisy that causes them to lie, not just to the members of the church, but to God himself. And it's that act, that act of hypocrisy in which God responds by this severe judgment. He says, why Satan? Filled your heart with this deceit and hypocrisy. And it's funny how he labels this as a satanic influence. Why? Because that's what the devil is. He is one of deception. That's the characteristic mark of the devil. One of deception. Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, that he even calls the devil an angel of light. Why? Because oftentimes he looks like the angel of light. Where on the outside he looks so great, so Christian, so gospel-centered. But deep down inside there is this deception that's hiding these impure motives, this deception. No one would have noticed the difference. Everyone would have recognized Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. But God, he knows the heart He knew their motivation. That their motivation was not simply to be generous, but to receive uh, proclamation, to receive recognition from the church. They wanted to be praised. Their motivation was not generosity, but they wanted to fatten up their, their egos. And we have to note that contrast between Barnabas and this couple. If you think about it, maybe they weren't that bad at first. Maybe they genuinely wanted to give their proceeds to those in need. But maybe as they sold their land, maybe they got more than they expected. And when they saw how much money they got, they said, you know what? Let's just keep back a portion of it. No one's going to know the difference. If we still give a majority of what we got, no one was going to know the difference. People are still going to be served. So let's just hold a portion of it. And gradually, this deceit, this hypocrisy, this fraudulent act takes root in their hearts where it comes as action. And it's not as if Satan forced them to act in this way. He influenced them, but they acted on their own to be hypocrites, to deceive others. And it's that act that deserves such a harsh judgment. And here's the connection. That's the exact kind of thing that's going to stop the gospel from being spread. That's the connection we need to make. That internal deceit. Things that happen inside the church. Things that happen inside our own hearts. Those are the very means that Satan's going to use to make sure that this gospel doesn't go to those people around us. 
It's not only the physical persecution from outside. Some places have those here in America. We're going to get more of those. But you know what's so much more effective? Working in our own hearts. Influencing us. Planting seeds of deception and hypocrisy. That's how Satan operates. That's the biggest obstacle to spreading this gospel. It's the sins within our own church. It's the things that we're trying to cover up. Where we look very Christian on the outside, in our church attendance, maybe in our Sunday clothes, our personalities, maybe the way that our fellowship looks, our community groups. On the outside, it looks very Ananias-like, very Barnabas-like, very gracious, very Christian. But if there are things inside our own hearts and within our own church, these sins, acts of hypocrisy, pretending to be Christian, when deep inside we are harboring so much deception and sins, being accustomed to that kind of living, that's what prevents the gospel from leaving this place to those around us. It's a sober warning. It's a sober realization. And the question that we have to ask is, are you a part of that opposition? Are you in some manner preventing the gospel from going out because of the internal deceit that's happening inside the church, inside your own heart? Are we so consumed with ourselves that all of our attention and our resources and our energy is so much about ourselves that we don't even have time to consider those around us? And we mentioned, we talked about how the church is a hospital. And that's true. We do care for our members. We pray. We, we pray for fellowship and community to help us along this path. But at the same time, if that's all we are, if all of our attention is inward, then we've been deceived. And Satan's very effective. In Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis, the devil he writes in the story, a moderated religion is as good as no religion at all, but it's amusing. A moderated religion is just as good as having no religion at all. In fact, it's just more amusing. So at the same time, we ask, is this moderated religion where on the outside we look very gospel-centered with our activities, the way that our services look, our hangouts. It can ultimately be religion that's just about us. And that's as good as having no gospel at all. In fact, it's amusing. And in the year 1857, a long time ago, uh, Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries to enter inland China. And during that time, he encountered this Buddhist monk And after a series of conversation, the Buddhist monk, he accepted Christ. He converted and he became baptized. And after that, he continued to have these conversations with Hudson Taylor. And this is what he asked Hudson. He asked them, how long had this good news of Jesus been known to your people in England? That's where Hudson Taylor was from. How long was this good 
tidings of Jesus been known to your people in England? And Hudson Taylor responded, well, I guess uh, about a few hundred years now. And to that, this former monk, he looks at Hudson Taylor and he's astonished and he says, what? Is it possible that for hundreds of years you have had the knowledge of these glad tidings in your possession and you have, have now only come to preach them to us? My father sought after the truth for more than 20 years and died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? Hudson Taylor had a lot of explaining to do to that former monk about his church in England, some of the internal issues, where all the money and resources were going towards. And Taylor writer writes, he says, a whole generation has passed since that mournful inquiry was made. But how many, alas, might repeat the same question today? How many of our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, and our families would say the same thing to you? How long did you know about Jesus? What took you so long to tell me of these glad tidings be? And what would your answer be? I just had so much going on. That's where my resources and my energies and my prayers went towards my kids, my families, my work. And is it the sobering truth that we just simply didn't have time or energy left for those people, for those who are waiting for these glad tidings? This is how Satan works. I pray that our church will not be deceived where we direct all of our attention to ourselves. But our attention goes towards those who are waiting. They're so desperately waiting for these good news. Let us not be deceived. Second point, destruction. And this is how God responds to this kind of deception. And as I mentioned, when we first read this, if this is truly an historical account, it's very scary, very shocking that something like this could happen where God immediately strikes down this couple for their act of deceit. For some of us, it might be scary. It seems very harsh. And that's what I'm going to answer just now. There's two things we need to note. First, remember what Jesus said. In Matthew 16, he says that I will protect my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Remember that? And we see that here, especially here in the book of Acts, we see the early church, the church in its infant stages, start to fruition. And especially in this sensitive time, what does God do? He personally takes it upon himself to protect his church. It's a special time in history, especially in these infant stages where God personally intervenes and he acts on their behalf. We've seen it so far in the miracles, haven't we? We saw the Pentecost happen where the Holy Spirit comes down upon the believers. We've seen miracles and we're going to see more of that 
in the book of Acts. We're going to see people come back from the dead. We're going to see angels release Peter and others from prison. We're going to see healings. We're going to see miracles all throughout. Why? Because in that time, in that place of the early church, God is intervening, directly working inside the church. Why? So that the church could do Acts 1.8. Spread the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's going to do whatever it takes to help them accomplish this task, especially this early on in the game. Now, on the other side of that coin, not only with miracles, God is going to do whatever he needs to do for the early church to make sure there is no act or influence of Satan inside his body, his church. So he will show and send divine judgment in this early stage to accomplish his promise that no one will infiltrate the gates of this church. We're going to see a lot of these acts of judgment throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod of Jerusalem, he gives this great speech to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, they say, the voice of a God, not man. They're so impressed. And King Herod, he so much enjoys that praise. He doesn't give any glory to God. You know what happens? He immediately falls to his death and it says, worms eat him up. And just as much as we see these acts of miracles at this time, we're going to see these acts of divine judgment. Why? So that God protects his church. And the gates of Satan will not prevail. See, our passage is the first time that the unity and the holiness of the church is challenged. And God will make sure that the holiness and unity and this radical generosity, all of these things will not be tarnished by even one minor act of deception. It's a classic case of that phrase we often use, to nip it in the bud, right? It's what you do so early on so that it doesn't grow, so it doesn't affect the rest. This is what's happening. God's nipping it in the bud so that this deceit and hypocrisy does not spread to the church as it grows, as it permeates. And it's very effective, this nipping in the bud. Because what's the response we see in the church? A great fear came upon the church. This great godly fear came upon all those who saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Perhaps we have some of that fear now, reading this passage. Nipping it in the bud is very effective. You know, I always tend to fidget, uh, especially when I'm sitting down. I always tend to shake my leg. I see some of you guys doing that now. But you know, I don't do that much uh, fidgeting anymore. Because when I was younger, whenever I shook my leg, my mom, she would smack me. And she would say, don't shake, don't waste all of your good luck. And I would look at her, wondering where this pagan idea came from, where if I shook my leg, that all of this good luck would leave my body. And as Christian as she was, every time I shook my leg, she made sure I stopped. And to this day, every time I'm tempted to shake my leg, I have this ominous feeling 
that some Korean lady is going to pop out of nowhere and smack me and say, don't waste your good luck. And as pagan as that is, it's effective, isn't it? To nip it in the bud. To make sure it doesn't permeate, it doesn't grow. You act early and decisively. That's what God is doing with his church. The second reason why God performs this divine act of judgment is we have to remember what these things stand for. Remember Pastor Charles. He came a few weeks before. And when we saw the healing of the lame man, what was one of his points? One of his points was that healing miracle was a sign that pointed forward to the future. That miracle was a sign that pointed future where one day when Jesus returns, there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no cancer, no suffering, no death. And so when we see Jesus and his disciples acting these miracles, we're going to see some of that future heavenly reality intrude in the present. That's what those miracles are. And so at the same time, when we see this divine judgment, we see that it is the divine judgment that all of us deserve as sinners. The wrath of God that you and I deserve as sinners, the wrath that we're going to get in the future, we see that being intruded into the present, into Ananias and Sapphira's situation. It's a sign that points forward. You see, when we present it like that, it shouldn't be that shocking. It shouldn't be that much of a surprise to us because you and I know that as sinners, we deserve not that kind of wrath, but even much more. That's what's reserved for sinners like you and me. And this is what awaits us. It's not a surprise. For them, they had acts of hypocrisy, and deceit. In Romans chapter 1, it adds more to that list. It says, those who are with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, the list goes on and on. And it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And so when this list is presented to us, who can remain standing? How many of us can say that we don't deserve the same exact verdict that Ananias and Sapphira reserve? Because for me, there's not a day that goes by where I don't cheat God of his glory. I'm in the same category. And I'm trying to hide it. As if things are so Christian in my life. But every time I read this list, something in my heart tells me, remember that act of malice? Remember that time when you were boastful and haughty and heartless and faithless and disobedient? For Ananias and Sapphira, they covered up the portion of their earnings. But for those who are here today, 
What are you covering up? Under the facade of Sunday clothes? How you look? Your appearance? How your conversations are? Your personality? How great our fellowship looks? All the while, we're harboring these sins, these acts of hypocrisy and deceit, which we try to pretend we are more Christian than we actually are. God protects his church. And that's the verdict for any of those found on that list. It shouldn't be a surprise to us when we read that Ananias and Sapphira immediately fell to their deaths. There's a power that comes along with sin. It's the power of guilt. And it's a power of shame. And that affects the church. And it cripples it from sharing this gospel. You know, there's a writer who once wrote an article about the power of this kind of hypocrisy, this guilt and this shame. And he remembers once in high school, he was given the task to write a book review on Great Expectations. I think it's a book that all of us are required to read. And him being a very good student, he finished his work very early on. And as time progressed, he found out that a lot of his students, a lot of his classmates, they were very much procrastinating. And they didn't even start their work yet. So as he was talking to his friends, one of his friends said, you know what, if you like the book so much, why don't you write my review for me? And to that he responds, I'll do it for $20. And so to make a long story short, uh, he made a lot of money. Uh, He wrote a lot of book reviews. And then one day, he hears the intercom. And it's the principal. And he calls him to the office. And he walks into the principal's office and he sees three of his friends already there. The friends that he wrote book reviews for. And he himself takes a seat and the principal, he takes out four book reviews and he reads similar portions from all of them. And as the principal is reading, he's thinking in his mind, at least three days suspension. He's thinking about all the casualties that are to come. But on top of that, he's thinking of his reputation. What are my parents going to think of me? What are my friends going to say? What are the teachers going to think of me now? I've been such a great student. But to his surprise, as the principal was reading, the secretary burst in the door and she says, Principal, you're urgently needed. Please come with me. And so he leaves the office. But before he does, he looks back and he says, We're going to finish this tomorrow. And so they go back to their classes. And so the next day, he's waiting to get called into the office again. But no call comes. He waits another day. Nothing. Another day. And so forth. Nothing. So he's wondering, did the principal forget? And you would think that he would be so relieved now, wouldn't he? But that's not how he remembers it. Because he writes, Every time I heard my parents say, I love you, I would say my heart. You wouldn't if you knew what I did. Every time his teacher said, you're such a great student, he would think to himself, no, I'm not. I'm a fraud. And he writes that every neutral experience, every even neutral relationship, put this weight upon him 
that it was the most miserable time of his high school career. He says that the power of this secret had such power and magnitude that it controlled and colored every relationship. Because the fear of being exposed seeped into every neutral experience, second-guessing, accusing, and haunting us, sometimes forever. Have you ever experienced this? Where the power of secret sins has such a magnitude on you that it controls and it colors every relationship that you have, especially with God. Where when you hear the word, God loves you, you think, not knowing what I've done. When you read about God's forgiveness, the free offer of forgiveness that is granted to you, you think to yourself, not for me. You don't know what I'm thinking of. You don't know the things that I've done in the past. You don't know the things I've harbored in my heart. That's the power of sin, of guilt, and shame. And while you have this harboring guilt and shame, we go throughout our lives being as Christian as we can, wearing our Sunday best, being very Christian in our conversation. Our fellowship looks great. What's on your list? We might be in the most Christian place on a Sunday morning. But many of us, we're experiencing the power of this guilt and shame. And every time you hear those words, God loves you, you look at your own list. You look at your own sins. And we read about the wrath of God. Who can stand? Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6. Who can stand? None of us. This judgment shouldn't be a surprise to us. Paul writes, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We have to get to that place first before you truly understand this gospel grace. You have to understand what God saved you from. That when we see Acts chapter 5, we see this wrath and judgment, we don't see that as something far away from us. That's ours. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? we see the intrusion of divine judgment in our passage. You know, a few weeks before, there was another intrusion. An intrusion of divine wrath. The intrusion of wrath that was reserved for you and me. And where does it fall? On the cross. Where that wrath... It wasn't this objective wrath somewhere out there, but it was yours, reserved for you, somewhere in the future. 
but we see the heavenly intrusion of God's wrath on that cross where Jesus died. And in Jesus, you can stand. You can stand knowing that he releases you from the power of guilt and sin and shame, where he became the propitiation for our sins. The fullness of God's wrath reserved for us fell upon him in that place, at that time in history. So that you no longer have to fear. We're on that cross where Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. So in Jesus, you can stand. In Jesus, you can be free from the power of guilt and shame. In Jesus, you no longer have to live as hypocrites because Jesus Christ, knowing the deepest and ugliness of your sins, Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, he came. That blows my mind. While knowing all of your acts of hypocrisy and deceit and whatever's on that list, while we were still sinners, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, he came, still died for you. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Let's pray.